Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discussions in Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. And this week, we're continuing our beginner-friendly series where we discuss each class for all those who are unfamiliar or interested in playing a specific class. This week, we're discussing Fighter and Paladin. So, I know that as a player, I generally gravitate away from these two. So it was actually kind of interesting for me to take time and sink into the Paladin a little bit. And Jaren, I know that you haven't really played Fighter too much, is that right? Yeah, I don't typically play Fighter. They're surprisingly a complex class. On the surface, they are uh, pretty simple, but they've got a lot of complexities to them. Uh, they're a class that, um, you know, they, they swing a weapon and they hit stuff hard and they hit stuff a lot. That's kind of the summation of, of a fighter. Uh, they're, they're what you'd think. They get into the, right into the mix of combat, and they're the ones that are taking some hits, but also dealing a ton of damage at the same time. Um, what's interesting about fighter, uh, there's such a variety among them, but what makes them really interesting, um, is this thing that they get right away at second level called action surge, uh, where they get to, uh, burn this action surge and get, and take a second action. Most of the time you're going to use that to make another attack. They can do that once per day. Um, and then, like I said, they've got a pretty wide variety of the types and archetypes that they uh, get to choose from, which we'll go over later when we talk about some of the subclasses. Um, and they can be a, a pretty broad variety of fighter, um, anywhere from somebody that's wielding this massive two-handed great sword and swinging down for a ton of damage, uh, to maybe you're a fighter that just wields a single uh, longsword and you also have a shield to give yourself some extra protection. Um, maybe you're like a duelist and you're uh, a fencer, you're wielding this, this rapier. Um, or maybe you're just uh, somebody that's going to play as a ranged fighter and um, you know, you're know you kind of riding the line between what a ranger and a fighter is. To me, if you're going to play a, a ranged character, just go ahead and play something like a ranger. Um, it's, that's kind of outside of what I think of what a fighter is. So I'm just going to say go ahead and play something that's melee that's going to be way more interesting, I think. Um, so that's kind of the basics of, of a fighter. They get that action surge where they take multiple actions, and uh, a lot of times you're just using that to attack again in combat. Um, some of the main stats for fighter, most of the time you're putting all your stats into strength and constitution. You want to put a bunch into strength because that means you're going to have a better chance to hit, as well as when you do hit, you're going to hit for a lot more damage. Um, and then additionally with con, you want to have a lot of hit points, so you're putting your, your stats into constitution. Um, so every time you level up, you're getting a good amount with that con bonus. Uh, they also have one of the bigger hit dies of all the all the classes at a D12, a D10. Sorry, I think there's one or two classes that have a D12, but uh, fighters get a D10, which is uh, like I said, one of the higher ones. Um, so typically they're going to be able to tank a bunch of hit points, and it's not going to be a big deal. Uh, for proficiencies, they've got proficiencies with all armor and shields, as you'd imagine, all simple and martial weapons. Um, so you can pick anything that's in the player's handbook uh, that has those categories. Um, they don't have proficiency with tools. Often they're not really the, the ones that are trying to pick locks or, um, you know, what, whatever else you want to do with tools. They're the ones that just know all about weapons and armor and can hit stuff pretty hard. Uh, and you get to choose two skills from the list of skills. Um, so uh, like I, I kind of alluded to before, their thing is just hitting stuff. They're not necessarily the uh, the specialists of a, sp a particular set of skills. Um, 
For their starting gear, they get to take uh, Chainmail, which is an AC of 16, or they're taking uh, Leather Armor, which gives you not quite as much armor, uh, AC, but uh, it is something. Um, and you get a longbow with some arrows. Um, again, I'm going to recommend you not playing the ranged fighter. Play something that takes you know, a good amount of armor and a melee weapon. Um, they do get to start with a, a single uh, martial weapon. Uh, pick something that's at least a D8 worth of damage going through the player's handbook. Um, and a shield, uh, which gives you plus two to AC. Or you get to pick two martial weapons. Maybe you're picking, like, you know, a couple hand axes or something like that. Um, yeah, which are a D6 slashing damage. So they're they're not bad. Um, so those are your that's your starting gear. Pick something that's going to give you some armor. And uh, go through and look at the the weapons. Pick some something that's got at least... A D8 worth of damage. You're the fighter. You're you're going to be the one that's dealing a big chunk of damage in combat. So pick a weapon that's got a good amount of a good amount of damage. Um, some of the other general things to know about fighters: um, when you start at level one, you pick a fighting style. Um, I'll give some examples in a second. Um, and you also get uh, this feature called Second Wind, which you're probably going to use a bunch. You can use it once. Uh, once per day, um, often you're just using this in the middle of combat. Uh, it's a bonus action to do it. And what it does is you get to regain 1d10 hit points plus whatever your level is. So at level 1, 1d10 plus 1. At second level, 1d10 plus 2, so on and so forth. So often you're using it in battle when you're realizing, oh, I'm suddenly low on hit points. Let's make sure I'm not going to die in this next turn and then start swinging the sword. Um, so some examples of the fighting styles that you pick at first level. Um, you pick one of these. And it kind of defines the direction that your fighter is going to go initially. Um, it's going to kind of influence some of your later decisions as well. Uh, but some examples, uh, one of the fighting styles is Interception. This is nice because it, the way that it works is if an ally uh, within five feet of you gets hit by an attack, um, as long as you've got a shield, you can spend your reaction and kind of interpose, reduce the damage done to your ally by 1d10 plus your proficiency bonus. Again, that's if you've got a shield. And that's that fighting style is called Interception. Um, there's one called Unarmed Fighting, which if you want to be sort of an unarmed bar, bar brawler or something like that, um, if, you know, your unarmed strikes suddenly deal 1d6 plus your strength mod, which is way more than they're supposed to do, um, then if you're not, if you don't have a shield or a weapon, you know, maybe you decided you're going to play an unarmed fighter, but you've got a, uh, a dagger or something, uh, a hand axe in your offhand, or maybe you've got a shield. Um, if you decide to take unarmed fighting and not wield those, your unarmed strikes are a D8 plus your strength mod. Again, way more than they do for any other character that's unarmed. Um, then if you're grappling a creature at the start of your turn, you just automatically can deal 1D4 bludgeoning at the start of your turn. Um, and that is the unarmed fighting style. Uh, and last example of a fighting style that I wanted to uh, brief over is called dueling. And the way that works is if you're wielding a melee weapon in one hand and no other weapons, um, in my mind I'm picturing like somebody that is more finesse and they're like a fencer, for example, um, you get to get uh, a plus two to all your damage rolls. So a little bit of a bonus, it's the idea that you know, you're just much better at knowing where to strike your opponent uh, to deal a little bit more damage every time you hit. Um, and I think that is good because, uh, again, we've got this action surge at level 2 where we get to take a second action. So that plus 2 might not seem a lot like a lot, but once you start taking multiple attacks in the same turn, that starts to add up. Um, so that is the general overview of, of Fighter, including some of the, uh, the things you get right off the bat at level 1. Um, some of the main subclasses, there's a bunch... I'm just going to talk about two. Each one of the subclasses is interesting in its own right, and they're all fairly complex. So I would uh, encourage you, if, if Fighter sounds like an interesting class to you, um, 
do some reading online, be willing to do some homework, look through the player's handbook, look through Tasha's call and everything. There's a lot of different subclasses and they're all fairly unique and complex. So I don't think we have enough time to go through all of them, but I will touch on two that are kind of uh, good example archetypes of, of fighter. Um, and I'm going to go through these uh, for specific reasons too. And we'll talk about that uh, when we talk about the first one, Battlemaster. What is unique about Battlemaster is uh, when you when you pick this this uh, subclass at level three, you get these things called maneuvers, and they're they're different sort of actions you can take in in combat. For the most of the time, they're in combat um, based on this thing that you get called superiority dice. You start with four superiority dice. They're all d8s. Um, and if you've ever played Monk, they're kind of like Monk, where they get these where monks get these things called key points, where you spend a key point, you do a thing. It's kind of the same idea here. You spend a superiority dice and you get to do a thing. And to give an example of some of these uh, maneuvers that you get to choose from, um, there is, uh, for example, disarming attack, where you spend one of your superiority die and you attempt to make your opponent drop their weapon in combat. You roll the die and uh, this is after you've hit them. You roll the die, uh, you add that superiority die number to the damage that you deal, then they have to make a strength save and if they fail, they just drop their weapon and it falls at their feet. Kind of cool. Um, another maneuver is called bait and switch, which is really neat. You get to spend that die. You swap places with an ally within five feet. Um, what's great about this doesn't provoke opportunity attacks. There's no reaction and deal damage to your ally. It's just as a switch. Um, then you roll that die and either you or the ally you get to choose gets a bonus AC of that amount until your next turn starts. It's a really good defensive maneuver. Um, and then there's some other ones. There's ambush commanding presence, tactical assessment. These are all different. They all kind of do same, similar things um, where you get to add that superiority die roll to different ability checks. This would be more of an out of a combat sort of a thing, um, you know, where maybe you're trying to be a little more stealthy and you can use ambush to gain a bonus to your, your dex roll. Um, or maybe you're trying to really uh, intimidate a, a group of enemies and you want to take commanding presence and add that to your uh, intimidation roll, um, so on and so forth. Um, I wanted to talk about Battlemaster because uh, it is a very complex class. There's a whole lot of maneuvers that you can take. And that combined with all the different fighting styles that there are for fighter, uh, all the different feats that you could possibly take if you're playing in a campaign where you've got these optional feats. Um, there's, a, there's just so many different things that you can do in fighters that it's kind of intimidating. Even to me that's been playing D&D a while, I don't really play fighters, but to look through this and to try to pick out my own idea of a fighter of what I want to do is is a lot to take in there's a lot of options and so I imagine if you're brand new to it it's also like similarly pretty intimidating fortunately Tasha's came to the rescue when they released uh they, when Tasha's came out they have this section called Battlemaster Builds and it's the first time I've ever seen anything like this in a fifth edition source book where they kind of give you a, a recommended build archetype um so you can, as you're as you're creating your fighter and leveling up, you can look through this and go right off from the get go. You can look at this and go, well, uh, I want to play somebody that is. I'm gonna look at this one called Duelist, and uh, let's see what the description of Duelist is. They are uh, somebody that regards the duel as a proud tradition, a test of skill and wits that brings honor to those who can defeat an enemy while respecting the art. Your search for improvement is a consuming passion, and you draw on the expertise of the masters who've come before you as you work to perfect your form. And you look at that and think, oh, that's kind of the fighter that I want to make. That's the idea that I had. That sounds really cool. What do I need to do to sort of build that archetype and go in that direction thematically? 
and they look through this and go, well, the fighting style that they suggest is uh, dueling or two-weapon fighting. Those are ones that specifically cater to that idea. Um, and then there's a list of maneuvers that they suggest you take. Um, evasive footwork, fainting attack, lunging attack, parry, precision attack, repost. All things that sort of fit in that theme of duelist. Then there's a whole list of feats once you get to level four and, and further levels when you're not sure what feats to take because that's a whole nother bag of worms that is sort of complex in its own right. Um, but fortunately, it gives you a list of feats that are suggested if you want to build a duelist. Uh, defensive duelist, dual wielder, the observant feat, savage attacker, weapon master. Um, so I can look at this, I can just copy this paragraph, uh, find it online, just copy it into my notes. And whenever it's time to level up, I go, well, what do they suggest for the duelist? That's what I'm gonna take. I don't have to think about it. I just follow the, the archetype build. You don't have to, these are just suggestions. Um, then to give another example really quickly, there's this thing that uh, is called the skirmisher. Okay, you thrive amid the, ca the chaos of battle. You use your mobility and versatility in combat to soften your adversaries and disrupt their formations. An enemy's plan rarely survives contact with you. And I think, that sounds interesting. What do I need to do for that? Well, fighting style, um, you take archery or, or thrown weapon fighting, which is one that is listed in Tasha's. Um, they have a whole list of maneuvers such as ambush, bait and switch, one that we talked about, um, an ambush we talked about, uh, distracting strike, quick toss, if you want to be somebody that throws daggers as a way to distract your enemies. Uh, then for feats, there's the alert feat, dual wielder, mobile, skulker. Um, and there's a good number of these different builds. So I, I recommend, yeah, again, once once again, read the different builds, see what sounds interesting. And that way, when you're starting off from scratch at level one, you can pick one of these builds and have a direction right off the bat um, instead of, you know, being a little bit unsure or intimidated by the sheer number of possible pathways you could take with fighter. You just follow this build master, this battle master build. And this is sort of specific to this uh, subclass of Battlemaster. Um, maybe at one one point in, down the road, they'll, they'll continue this on for other subclasses of fighter. I'm not sure. Um, I think it's just for Battlemaster specifically, there's just a lot of different options and uh, they make it a bit easier if you want to go this route. So that's Battlemaster. They get these really cool maneuvers, uh, superiority dice that let you spend it and do something interesting during combat. Um, read through them all and, and see what sounds interesting. A lot of times they're just distractions and disruptions or giving boosts to your own attacks. Um, so yeah, enough on Battlemaster. The other subclass I wanted to highlight and give a, a quick overview of is the Psy Knight, PSI, the Psy Knight. Um, these are fighters who uh, have been able to manifest this psychic telekinetic energy in order to boost their attacks and their defenses. Um, they have a, a mechanic that is sort of similar to superiority dice, but instead they get this thing called psionic energy dice. It works very similarly where you spend one of these dice and you do a thing. Um, and to give an example of some of the things that you can do, um, at third level, you get, uh, there's, a, there's a few of them. Um, you have this thing called protective field where you spend one of these psionic energy dice and um, you get to basically manifest this telekinetic uh, field of energy that lets you reduce damage done to you or an ally within 30 feet, a good range, um, by an amount that is equal to that dice roll plus your intelligence modifier. You've got a thing called psionic strike, 
which similarly, you roll the psionic energy dice and uh, you you add that number plus your intelligence mod modifier to a damage on an attack that is hit. So using that psychic telekinetic energy to uh, increase the damage of your strikes. Um, then the other thing that you get at third level is this thing called telekinetic movement. Um, once per short or long rest, you get to move a large or smaller object with your mind. And then you can spend a uh, psionic energy dice to do it again um, without having to take a rest. Um, so it's, it's kind of a neat uh, idea. Uh, there was a, um, a whole source book in, in previous D&D editions that dealt with psionics. And they reintroduced it here in 5th edition in Tasha's Calder and everything with the Psy Knights. And uh, like I said, it's just all about using this telekinetic energy to boost your attacks and defenses. Um, they get a bunch of cool stuff later on, but that's the things that you get kind of at, at you know right off the bat uh, around third level as you're as you're playing this subclass. Um, general playstyle. This is a short section. It's pretty straightforward. You want to be the first one that's in battle. Um, you're the one that's probably got the most hit points, so you're willing to tank some damage. And uh, you're swinging your weapon a bunch. You're using your uh, your action surge to deal multiple uh, attacks. Um, I believe at later levels you, you get uh, second and third attack in combat. Um, so you're striking a lot of times. Um, and you just want to be the one that's getting in there, you know, making sure to finish off enemies. And sometimes if you score a critical hit, even uh, one-shotting some enemies. Um, as a lot of times you're striking down with a big great sword and cleaving right into them. They're a lot of fun. They deal a lot of damage, and they've got some good HP. And um, yeah, I think that's about it for fighters. I I I think personally, I'm more interested in playing uh, a battle master because I do have all these different maneuvers, and because the book gives it, makes it really easy for me to play one. I just have to look at an archetype and then stick to that, and I don't have to do a whole lot of thinking. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting that you you bring up how much fighters fight but you know with the complexity especially with Battlemaster, knowing all of these different maneuvers that they can do it's kind of funny to think about fighters i i tend to think that fighters have the easy in to DD. i don't really know if i want to worry about casting spells i don't know if even i want to be a half caster i'm going to stick with one of the martial classes or i'm going to stick with fighter but even if you choose fighter, there are so many options and way, ways that your fighter can be unique, especially to you and the way that you want to fight. Um, and it just goes to show that even if you're not slinging spells, you are, you're creating characters that are very, very unique, especially in fighting style. Yeah, and I think um, this this Battlemaster build section is a really good way to start if you're if you're unsure of what to play in Fighter. Just read one of these builds, find one that sounds cool and interesting, and then pick that. It's sort of a good middle ground between if you've ever uh, tried to start playing D and D and someone had you handed you a pre made character sheet because you know making a character is kind of a big deal and it's kind of intimidating if you don't know what you're doing, and so they just handed you a character sheet and you thought well. That's great and all, and I don't have to do a lot of work for it, but this isn't exactly what I wanted to play. I think this is a good middle ground because you can go, well, I'm going to take Fighter, but I also don't want to do a lot of work, but I want to pick something that still is interesting to me. Let's take uh, the Bodyguard because that sounds kind of cool. What do I need to do? Awesome. Got it. Yeah, and this is definitely a conversation for another time, but I really think that, that instead of that being in Tasha's, they probably should have... I don't know. I think maybe made that free content like or put it in 
to a further a new edition of the player's handbook because that information needs to be accessible by people who are new players because it is such a good resource for people who don't really know what to do in regards to you know building a fighter especially with battle master and all of these different you know feats and fighting styles and things like that you know every every class has their beginning section of well how to how to build you know a fighter or how to build a cleric you max this stat then you max this stat and you take this cantrip and you take this spell at level one or you take this fighting style and you take this fighting style they don't really have that for the breadth of what you can do and i think that that is a really good resource i hope that they, yeah i hope I'm, they do that for i'm rambling too yeah absolutely well hype us up about paladins yeah so like i said i'm not super used to paladins they're not there's i've i've played it once in a one shot and we went to the abyss and i think everybody died so i don't really remember too much about paladins so it was nice to get a refresher course and jump back into the books and learn a little bit more about paladins so paladins are creatures people beings that have bound themselves to cosmic oaths oaths that they are taking um Paladins are warriors that wield both magic and weaponry to bring justice and smite the wicked. Typically, paladins are good aligned uh, people, humanoids, uh, that have committed their lives to fighting the forces of darkness. Now, paladins along the way, they may vary in their reasons for shouldering the mantle of their oaths, But what they all agree on is the severity of their seriousness in that oath. Most paladins take their oaths because of some sort of higher calling, but they bring it with them across the lands as they adventure. Paladins keep their oaths, they stand up for what they believe in, and they shoulder that as they travel. Now, I did mention magic and weaponry. Paladins are half-casters. So if you've listened to previous episodes or are familiar with the idea of half-casters, they do not have access to spells above fifth level, and they also do not have access to cantrips. But they generally have either proficiency in martial weapons or gain the extra attack feature, like paladins do. At fifth level, they get the extra attack feature. No other caster gets that except for half-casters having access to 5th level spells and extra attacks. Now, if you think about somebody who's ironclad in heavy armor and wielding great swords, you might think of strength, and you would be correct. Uh, You typically want to max strength or charisma first, depending on how you want to play, because charisma is their spellcasting modifier and their spellcasting ability, and strength is where their weapon damage is going to come from. So however you want to deal your damage is what you'd want to max first, and then either second or third is probably constitution, because you're going to want to be pretty buff. They do have, uh, just like fighters, they have 1d10 that they roll for their health. Now, their proficiency, much like fighters, uh, they have all armor proficiency and shields. Uh, Their weapon proficiencies are simple and martial weapons, wisdom and charisma saves, and the skills that you get to pick from, you get to pick two from athletics, insight, intimidation, medicine, persuasion, and religion. A lot of things sound a little bit similar to clerics, and that's kind of on purpose. Some paladins have oaths to gods, some just have oaths to ideas or or ideals. And 
the way that these characters are kind of played are a little bit similar in the sense that they are helping people, they are healing the sick, they are standing up for the downtrodden and the unprotected. Now, the things that make paladins uniquely paladin, um, there's four main things that I like to think about. The first thing is called divine sense. So they are so, paladins are so in tune with the presence of holy auras or the presence of evil. The paladins can sense the presence of celestials, fiends, or undead that are not behind total cover within 60 feet of them. And that is something they can do, you know, however many times per long rest, but they can, they can do that and they can sense these beings. They can't sense who they are, but you know how many there are and where they're located. Um, another thing is called lay on hands. Each paladin has a pool of healing points that they can tap into and essentially have free healing spells. They don't have to use spell slots to heal people. They just have an, the innate ability to uh, lay their hands upon a creature and pour this healing energy into them. Um, another thing is called divine smite where you are so righteous in your in your cause that the divine power that you wield can be pumped into your weapon attacks. Whenever you hit within a weapon attack, you can expend uh, a number of spell slots to deal an additional 2d8, and then you continue more d8s, depending on how many spell slots you spend each attack. Um, and this is every single time that you attack, you can do this. So you're just pouring this radiant damage into each of these attacks. And the last thing that I think about whenever I think of paladins is their auras. So paladins, just by existing, have auras that within a certain number of feet, it, it gets better as you level up, such as D&D. You gain stacking auras where you can either end a charm or frighten effect. You can bolster your allies' saving throws. I think some of them are either are also dealing more damage and it's just depending on how close you are to the paladin this just automatically happens because of their holy presence being so strong their aura just blesses their allies so a couple of these subclasses that i want to talk about for paladins um there's two of them the oath of conquest and the surprise one that we will talk about when a paladin maybe is not so good so the Oath of Conquest paladins seek glory in battle and to subdue their enemies and claim victory over the wicked. It's not just enough that they are, you know, being the lawful presidents or the avatar of protection. They want to win. Now, much like clerics, paladins do also get a channel divinity. They get it at third level when they take their oath. So... I, I did forget to mention, but at third level is when they choose their subclass, and that is when they are donning this oath. When they are taking this sacred oath is how they get their subclass. So their channel divinity is both guided strike and conquering presence. Um, essentially, with conquering presence, you use your channel divinity, and as an action, you can force each creature of your choice that you can see within 30 feet of you to become frightened of you. Essentially, if they fail their saving throw and they are looking at you, within 30 feet, they will immediately become frightened. 
of you, which I think is kind of cool that, you know, your paladin is so intimidating and their presence is so oppressive. They are causing other creatures to just be frightened of them without any sort of spell being cast. And Guided Strike, much like the War Cleric, uh, when you make an attack roll, you can use your Channel Divinity to gain a plus 10 bonus to the roll to make sure that you do hit. Um, and you can make this choice after you see the result of the roll, but before the DM says if it does hit or not. Starting at 7th level, this is a lower level thing that the Oath of Conquest Paladins get as well, is they are able to force the creatures that are frightened of them to reduce their speed to zero. Now, it does not extend to that full 30 feet like the Channel Divinity does. It does extend out 10 feet, but as you level up, it will extend out to 30 feet. And I think it's kind of cool that each of these subclasses get their own aura, and we will talk about another one when we switch over to the other one, which is right now. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum is a paladin that shirks their oath. They are called an Oathbreaker Paladin. Instead of taking an oath at third level, they are rebuking it and breaking their oath. Now, typically, Oathbreaker Paladins are not good aligned. Um, they are generally going to be uh, evil or neutral at the very best. Typically, you want to make them evil just to make this make sense. Um but their channel divinities that they get at third level are Control Undead and Dreadful Aspect. Control Undead, um, you're able to target one undead creature that the paladin can see within 30 feet. That target makes a wisdom saving throw. And on a failed save, the target must obey the paladin's commands for 24 hours or until they use that feature again. So being able to just take control of an undead creature. Um, and what's kind of crazy, there's no size limit on this. So if you are facing some sort of undead skeletal, I, let's say a moorbounder, something that is a giant jungle panther, but it's some undead animated creature by an enemy necromancer, the paladin can just take control of it, and now it is, now it's their undead pet. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty cool. It's a little frightening that, you know, a paladin that once stood for good, now standing for evil, is able to wield the power of the undead, but hey... It's not my character. And Dreadful Aspect, um, as an action, the Paladin can channel dark, horrendous, deep emotions of theirs and burst out in a magical menace in front of them. Uh, each creature, again, much like the Conquest Paladin, can frighten other creatures. So... Opposite end of the spectrum, doing the same thing, but opposite end of the spectrum. Instead of frightening with holy presence, you are frightening with an unholy presence. And their aura that they get is called Aura of Hate, again at 7th level. Any creatures that are within 10 feet, um, as well as fiends or undead, so could possibly be your enemies that you're fighting. They gain a bonus to the melee weapon damage rolls equal to the Paladin's Charisma modifier. So it's kind of good news, bad news. Everybody that's in that aura that is the Paladin or feeds an undead get the bonus. So if you're running an evil campaign, this would be great. If you're not, it may be a bit of a gamble to see if it's actually worth using that. Um, but I mean, if you're having an evil Paladin in your party anyway and you're all a group of good people, who knows how long they will last. But that is for another episode.
So some of the spells that I actually wanted to go over that I think are pretty cool. Um, one specific to Paladins is called Compelled Duel. This is a concentration spell that only takes one bonus action to do. Essentially, what you are doing is you are compelling an enemy to only attack you. Um, for the duration, that creature, if they fail their wisdom saving throw, they have disadvantage on any attack rolls on any other creature except for you. So essentially, you're pulling focus, you're protecting your other teammates by making sure that they will have disadvantage on attack rolls against them, while also drawing focus to you. Which, in the, the playstyle of the Paladin, this actually works in their favor. Um, another one that I thought was pretty cool is, so much like the Divine Smite, the Paladins have a full kit of smites in their back pocket. You know, there's brandishing branding smite there's banishing smite one that is specific to paladins is thunderous smite um so it is concentration another concentration spell a bonus action so the first time that you hit with a melee weapon attack during the spell's duration the your weapon just thunders out with a crash of steel on steel within with a 300 foot radius of this sound wave the attack deals an extra 2d6 thunder damage and if the creature uh, if the target is a creature that you hit this with, they have to make a strength saving throw or be pushed 10 feet away and knocked prone just based off of the pure sonic energy that you are putting into this smite. And finally, what good is a paladin without a horse? And paladins have a spell for that. Paladins specifically have a summoning spell called Find Steed where you cast it, it takes 10 minutes to cast, but once you cast it, you have a strong, intelligent, loyal steed, which can take the form of a warhorse, a pony, a camel, an elk, or a mastiff. Um, or in, you know, a party member of mine's case, he picked a moose, and it was awesome. And you can just ride it, and it's kind of like the Find Familiar spell, where you're able to summon this, like, fey or celestial or fiendish spirit that takes the form of whatever you choose, but in this case, for the Paladin, they are able to ride this mount, which that saves money on gold. It saves time on a party for trying to find horses um, and travel time. So I think this is a pure utility spell, but I love it. And I think it's such a cool idea for the Paladin to just say, hey, don't buy me a horse. I've got one in my back pocket. That's cool. It's like the, the Legend of Zelda spell or the uh, Horizon Zero Dawn summon your horse. Yeah, Actually. essentially, you're summoning a Pona, you're summoning your steed. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and being able to like have these in different forms would be super interesting and thematic, kind of depending on where you're at. Um, you know, our, our, our Sunday D&D group, we're up in the, in the frozen north, so I can imagine up there you would summon an elk or something like that, or a, a moose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really cool. Now, the playstyle of this class... Um, these are frontline brawlers, much like a fighter, they're going to throw themselves into the middle of battle with their generally high AC and high health. They're going to want to be in the center of everything, especially with their auras as well, being able to bolster their allies as well as protect them and draw the attention of the, the attackers. Paladins will be right in the front casting these smite spells um, while swinging their sword multiple times. Out of combat, um, I think it would be interesting if you, since you are maxing charisma on this type of class, I think it would be interesting if your 
party doesn't have a bard or a sorcerer, they'll have their paladin speak for them because paladins are generally either intimidating or persuading to people with their high charisma. I think that would be a pretty cool way of of getting through social interactions as well. Instead of somebody charming their way or deceiving their way through a conversation, the paladin, by their pure just presence, is either intimidating or persuading based on their, their own righteous morality. Yeah, that does certainly does offer some uh, interesting role-playing uh, opportunities. And uh, the one time that I did play a paladin, I think what attracted me to it was those series of oaths. You know, the, the, the three or four tenets that each subclass of uh, a paladin offers. And um, probably because it really reminded me of uh, the Stormlight Archive fantasy series. If you're a fan of Brandon Sanderson, it really reminded me of that. I kind of like the idea of a paladin reaching a certain point and then you know before the the gods themselves or before their um you know their their whatever the however they worship they have to you know kneel and swear these oaths that they will live by these tenets that they're going to live their life by i thought it was really cool it's not mechanically a thing it's just um thematically and role play wise i thought a really attractive thing if that's if that's something that you're into yeah, it's almost, it kind of reminds me of the cleric and how honor-bound honor bound they are to their god. Uh, paladins aren't necessarily honor-bound to a god. They can be, but some paladins are just more honor-bound to their oath and the, the communities that they swear their oaths to. And I think that's a very interesting flavor of being honor-bound to something that, unlike you know a warlock, you're not bound to a creature more powerful than you that is granting you these favors unlike a cleric you're not honor bound to a god that you have set your life in serving you are honor bound to people and to the oaths that you take regarding protecting people and i think that's that is probably one of my more favorite flavor things about paladins yeah for sure they, they've got they've got uh, some attractive things about the class um so we'll give them give them a try yeah, and honestly, if even if it is not your first time building a character, I would say take a look at all those fighter subclasses. Other than Battlemaster and Psy Warrior, there's something. There's the Samurai. There's Echo Knight. There are so many really cool combinations of of these fighters. There's even a fighter subclass that gets to cast spells. If that's what you want to do with it, it's not really what I think about when I think about fighters. But you know, you could do that. And there's one that that uh, taps into the ancient practice of uh, drawing runes, you know, inscribing giant runes in order to produce different effects. Um, but yeah, like I, like I mentioned way back in the in the podcast, there's uh, a lot of variety, and each one of these subclasses is pretty complex. So it's gonna be one if you want to do fighter, do some research first and figure out what you want to do, or just take Battlemaster and pick one of the archetypes. Absolutely. All right, well, that's our show. Thank you guys so much for stopping by. And if you like this episode, please check out our future episodes, which are released every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Central. Next episode, we'll be continuing our beginner-friendly series on an introduction to classes as we discuss Sorcerer and Barbarian. This has been Discussions and Dragons. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. See you guys next time. <laughs>